Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 300 speaker files, links for you to subscribe to the podcast, and a place where you can donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Sheila. Hi, my name is Sheila, and I am a compulsive overeater. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. Hi, everybody. Very, very happy to be here, and thank you to uh, my friend who had asked me to share. And I want to welcome, uh, we have a new friend here, and then some other people who might be new or returning. It takes a lot of courage to come here and be here and stay here, and I'm glad you came. It all starts with that first time, so welcome. The war is over. And you lost. <laughs> and uh, I know I lost, and, and it's, been, it's been a great victory. Um, I've been in Overeaters Anonymous for uh, 25 years, but I only have 13 years of abstinence. I was a chronic slipper for a dozen years, and I'll talk about that a little bit. But um, it would be great. And I used to weigh 200 pounds. I'm passing pictures, and I weigh about 135 now. And numbers are fairly uninteresting, but um, it's just good to know that, that Overeaters Anonymous works. And when I conclusively take a third step, which is a spe- had a special relevance for me as a chronic slipper, when I conclusively take a third step, it's amazing what happens in my life. And if being overweight had been the only problem that I had, that would be wonderful. But it wasn't even close to being my, my problem. It wasn't. It'd be great if that had been my problem. Because then, once you've taken off the weight, and I got to, I've been at this weight for, I don't know, seven, eight years. Then, if you take off the weight, you've solved the problem. But it wasn't my biggest problem. Not even close. Not even close. I had two problems. The two problems I had when I came in are the same things I wrestle with to a much lesser extent today. But they're the same two problems. I do not love easily. And I do not forgive easily. Those are my problems. Right? That is my spiritual malady. I don't love easily and I don't forgive easily. Myself. And if I can't do it for myself, what kind of a chance have you got? Right? Not very good. Not very good. And I was the youngest of five kids. Came from the Midwest. We were kind of a lower middle class family. My father had gone to school on the GI Bill. And... Again, I was the youngest of five. My oldest brother had contracted diabetes. He was 15 and I was seven. And my parents were fairly unsophisticated, so all of a sudden all the sugar was taken out of our house. And let me tell you something. I had a real problem with sugar because three years previous to this, I had started stealing sugar. And what happened is uh, we had a family friend who was a grocer, and he'll figure into the story again later. Let's just call him Joe. But... um, (laughs) um, my mother used to go to the grocery store, and she'd be it back at the, the meat counter with Joe, and then Joe would come up, and he would give me wet kisses in exchange for candy bars, right? And I was four. And I can remember the day I decided I, I simply wasn't going to endure those kisses anymore for these candy bars. I was just going to start stealing them, and so I did. So stealing was a big part of my story. It really was. Once I... I got straightened out and started working the steps, which was long before I got abstinent, by the way. But um, I had a lot of financial amends to make because, again, stealing was a big part of my story. And so I did it all through 
elementary school and junior high, and my two best friends were twins, and I was particularly close friends with one of those girls, and let's just call her Lucy, because she's going to figure in later, too. Um, and they were thin, right? They were thin, and they came from a family that was loving and healthy and wonderful, and I adored their mother. And she was Southern, and she loved to cook, and her daughters were thin, and they liked to eat, but I loved to eat. And so it, it, was, a great, it was a great relationship. And was really close with those girls, again, particularly close with Lucy. And um, um, I was just in a lot of pain. So I was doing a lot of stealing. I was stealing candy from catechism teachers. I'd blow through my Halloween candy in about three or four days. And then I would start on my siblings and always finish up with my twin friends who, you know, it always amazed me. They would still have Halloween candy by the time New Year's Eve was coming around. You know, I don't know how they kept it from me, but they did. And um, um, I just would always blow through that stuff. I mean, I had a real voracious desire for sugar. So again, started stealing at four, and then all of a sudden at seven years old, there's no more sugar in our house because, again, my brother had gotten diabetes. So now I'm in real trouble, right? That is what fueled a lot of the stealing and stuff. I had to have it. It was a real drug. I'm real clear that I have an allergy to sugar. And I take this very, very seriously here. I do. My mother and my brother both died of diabetes. And they were not pretty deaths, as most diabetic deaths are not. My brother died at 36. Again, was diagnosed at 15. And both his legs were gone. And let me tell you something. As a diabetic, when you lose your legs, it's not like they just cut off your legs. They start with the baby toe, then the next two, then below the ankle, then above the ankle, then below the knee, and they start on the next leg. I mean, my brother was literally losing his body piece by piece because in addition to his diabetes, my brother and my mother, like me, both had a raging sugar addiction, right? They were one of us. He could not stop eating sugar. He couldn't stop. He ended up in an old people's home for the last three years of his life on dialysis, and then he went blind. And when he went blind, he said, that's it, I'm not going to... I'm not going to live a life blind. So he took himself off dialysis, and he was dead within a couple of days at 36, right? So I take this very, very seriously. And I remember sharing that one time at a meeting, and the secretary came up to me afterwards, and she said, oh, sweetie, I don't think you should share that at meetings. You're going to scare people. (laughs) And I said, you know what, sweetie? I want to scare people. I really do. I take this very, very seriously. I really do. Because people die in my family behind addiction. And my mother had gotten diabetes at 66 and was dead at 68. So she was on the diabetes that it started out, the diabetes where you just had to moderate with food, and then she amped up to insulin, and then pretty soon she started losing her body piece by piece too. She died in a coma, right? So just a lot of tragedy in my life behind eating. And I could not stop eating. I was, I was thin in junior high, thin-ish, right? Again, I was always comparing myself. That was a real problem. I was always comparing myself. And remember, keep it on a post-it, those two issues I talked about, my two issues. Do not love easily. Do not forgive easily, right? Keep those up on the wall because those are really important. Everything comes back to that. So I was always comparing myself to these really thin friends I had. But I must have been thinnish enough because I was a cheerleader in junior high. And when I started out in seventh grade, I was the one that went on top. But by the time I was in the ninth grade, I was a base, right? A base. You know, you're leaning over, and then the little girls are jumping up on you, doing their thing. And then by the time I got to high school, I had started uh, menstruating. So all of the, the issues and problems that I had, because I was molested as a kid, too, by Joe, the grocer, right? That had happened when I was nine or ten years old. 
So all of a sudden, all the trauma that I'd experienced came up when I went through puberty. And then I put on a lot of weight. And by the time I got to high school, I was too overweight to be a cheerleader. I went to a high school that had a very competitive cheerleading squad, and they didn't want fat girls on the squad. So then I went down another track. So all of a sudden, those best friends of mine that were twins, who stayed thin and beautiful and lovely and cheerleaders in the whole nine yards, right, they tried to keep me in their circle. They were loving women. It did not matter to them what I weighed, but it mattered a great deal to me. Why? I do not know how to love myself, and I did not know how to forgive myself for being in pain and trying to heal myself with sugar, right? So uh, it was a very difficult three years in high school, and then I had a couple very difficult years in college. And then I had amped up. I'd started using drugs. I'd done a little bit of drinking in high school and then started doing drugs and alcohol in, uh, in college. But I always tell people, right, if you put a bottle of tequila, a line of cocaine, a joint, a carton of Marlboro Greens, and a hot fudge sundae <laughs> on a table, I will run to the hot fudge sundae. I still would, right? I'm real clear that sugar is my drug of choice. So I started getting into trouble with the drugs and alcohol, so it became real clear it was time to stop that. It took me seven years to do a four-year undergraduate degree. You'd think somebody would put two and two together. I did not. I did not. And, um, but eventually, bad things were starting to happen. I'd had a fiancé who died behind a drug overdose, and I'd been arrested for drunk driving, and I'd been totaling cars. I mean, you know, the problems were starting to pile up, and, and I was in a situation because my parents had run out of patience. Again, my father had gone to school on the GI Bill. He didn't fool around. So once I started getting, I got a couple of C's in college, and that got his attention. He said, that better stop. And once I got a D, he cut off the money. He said, I don't pay for D's. Good luck there, champ. Right? And I had one year left of school, so I struggled the student loans, etc. And then I had moved in with a woman who had a single mother, and she had three daughters. And I knew something bad was going to happen, and I was going to be driving this woman's kids around. And I didn't want that one on my life resume, right? I didn't mind if I killed you if you'd made it to adulthood because, well, you'd made it to adulthood. And if I killed myself, problem solved. But I didn't want to kill somebody's kids, right? So I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was there, you know, got sober first couple months. And I remember turning to somebody, and I said, you know, do you think you can have a problem with sugar like you have a problem with alcohol? And she said, absolutely. Here's where you want to go. She pointed me toward Overeaters Anonymous. So I came into Overeaters Anonymous in February of 1988. And I was really lucky because I heard a few things in the beginning that really changed my life. Because as I said, I was a chronic slipper for a dozen years, so I was not ready to put down the food for a long time. But I heard a couple things. I heard, keep coming back and work the steps regardless of what you're eating. Now, it's interesting because I came in my first OA meeting, and I will never forget that meeting, right? I remember where it was. I remember there were about five of us in the room, and the woman who was leading the meeting was the secretary of the meeting, beautiful African-American woman, and she had, uh, I remember she had a doctorate in accountant or something impressive, right, that I just thought was, and she was just beautiful, right? I just impressive and intelligent, everything that I wanted. And after the meeting, I asked her about this abstinence thing and how it worked. And she said, well, honey, what's your, what's your issue? What's your struggle with food? And again, my top weight was about 200 pounds. So clearly quantity eating was part of the problem. But I said, um, you know, sugar, I've got a real problem with sugar. I mean, I have a filling in just about every molar in my mouth, right? And um, I said, sugar, sugar is definitely my thing. And she said, well, what do you think about this? Do you think you could just eat three meals today? And not have any sugar? What do you think about that? She said, what if, what if you started there? And I said, well, that 
That might be a possibility. And I can't remember if we exchanged numbers or anything like that. I doubt it, because I'm thinking I would have called this woman. And I don't remember any numbers being offered. And that's also an important thing, right, to kind of put on the wall. But um, I know it was a meeting that started at 11 a.m., and so we'd gotten done now. It's about 12.30. And I hadn't eaten anything, because I figured, well, that must be how this goes, right? I've got a problem with eating, so don't eat when you show up at the meeting. So it's 12.30. I haven't eaten anything. I weigh 200 pounds, and I've just learned what abstinence is. Game on, right? And so I went to a restaurant, and it was a, you know, it's a a restaurant that, um, you know, you do a lot of times in the middle of the night when you're drunk after, you know, college, and you go and you all have breakfast in the middle of the night, right? So I was going to that restaurant because I was going to have breakfast at 12.30. And I remember going in there, and it was one of the first times I'd ever gone in that place, and I hadn't been drunk in the middle of the night, right, with a loud group of people. And I ordered a breakfast, a really normal breakfast, right, and had that breakfast, and I finished, and I, I, it, I was just very conscious of the fact that I'd never done that before. I'd never eaten that kind of food in that way, in that reasonable way, behaved, tipped well, because I'd been a waitress and stuff in college, so I knew how to do that stuff. And I remember I went out to my car, and I thought, huh, three meals a day, she said, and no sugar. No, it has to be more complicated than that. And I proceeded for the next dozen years to really complicate it. That was the last piece of direction I took other than start working the steps regardless of what you're eating for a long time. Now, I started at 200 pounds, and I had two older sisters and two older brothers. Remember, I was the youngest five. And all my sisters, we were all overweight. So my daddy had three overweight daughters, and he wasn't happy about that. And he made that real clear. So there was a lot of commenting, a lot of inappropriate commenting about my weight throughout my childhood. And I imagine it's as damaging to a young man, but I'll tell you what, it's very damaging to a young woman when your father is making it clear to you that your value has to do with what you weigh. And because you're overweight, you have less value. That is a wound that runs deep, runs very, very deep. And um, But I came in. And I got a sponsor at some point. Can't remember who I got, but I know we started working the steps. And my weight slowly started coming down. So about two years after my first coming into the meeting, maybe a year, year and a half, maybe I'm off on the time. But um, I had lost 20 pounds because I remember being at a family event, and I'd come outside, and I'd walk by my father, mistake, right, because now he's going to look behind me. And um, he said, well, he said, I see you've lost a little bit of weight, but you've got a lot more to go. And I turned around to him because I was 25 years old at that time, finally graduated from college, 25, 26, and I turned around and I said, no more. It's over. You do not talk to me about my weight anymore. It's over. Okay? And he said, okay. And my dad never talked to me about my weight again. And that's how I'm very, very clear, right, that it is very valuable to start working the steps regardless of what you're eating. And I'm really glad that that was the direction I got. And there are some people who have opinions about that. And you know what? I do not get into discussions with people who have opinions. I don't get into discussions with people here about things where somebody's convinced they're, they're right and I'm supposed to convince them that they're not, that, no, you don't understand. I'm actually the one who's right. I don't get into those discussions. Why? All I can do is share my experience, strength, and hope. And from my experience, working the steps... Regardless of whether or not I was ready to put down the food, transform my life. Because then, over the next seven or eight years, I lost about another 20 to 25 pounds. Okay? So again, my top weight is 200 pounds. 
And despite the fact then that I'm not a 100-pounder, because I had those dozen-plus years of slipping, I had gained and lost over 1,650 pounds. And I know that because I had a registered dietitian that I saw for years, who was also a member of this fellowship, by the way. I'd seen her for years. She had me track it. So if you were to give me a month and a year, I can tell you within five pounds what I weighed. Because I would lose and gain 15 to 20 pounds three times a year. Right? Well, that's, what, 90 to 120 pounds a year. You do that for a dozen years. You see how those numbers rack up? And she, again, had given me that direction to do that. So you give me a month and a year, I can tell you within five pounds what I weighed. And it's funny because my husband will say, you know, honey, I don't know what's crazier that you actually did that or that you can remember those numbers. I said, well, just don't figure it out. But, um, but that's my thing, right? I would go up and down, up and down, up and down. So that was my pattern. And I was consistently working the steps. So the weight was slowly coming down. That's, why, that's the only reason I really told you the numbers, right? So we can kind of get clear here. So I would bounce between, let's say, between 150 and 165, maybe go up as high again as 170. I did that for the next 10 years because I wasn't done. See, I just wasn't done with the, the, the sugar specifically. Sugar and quantity eating are my problems. And I just wasn't done. But I was working the steps. So the transformation was really happening. And then I'd kind of gotten reconciled to it. I figured, well, maybe I'm going to be one of those people whose weight is just going to go up and down like that. And I'm just going to have kind of a variety of sizes in my closet. And that's just going to be the way it is. You know, my, my boyfriend, then fiancé, because we were engaged for nine and a half years, right, because I'm afraid, because why? Remember my post-its? I don't love easily and I don't forgive easily. That makes intimacy very challenging, right? But um, my husband loved me no matter what I weighed, so I figured, well, maybe this is just going to be the way it is. And it, it was always very painful when I would get back into the sugar. It was. And I would feel very ashamed when I'd get back into it, and I'd run and hide, and I'd usually put on another 15 pounds, right? I'd put 15 pounds on very, very quickly, just eating sugar. And, I mean, it's amazing the amount, the, the quantities of sugar that I can eat. But I figured, well, this is just, this is just how it's going to be, I guess. And it was, uh, um, and I, I was lucky, though, that I, I had started working with a sponsor who really changed my life and again was going through those steps just cycling through them again and again because I'm from Michigan and so we were largely influenced by Dr. Bob and Dr. Bob's philosophy was you keep going through the steps over and over again in contrast to Bill and the New York crowd who said you go through the steps one time then cycle through 10 and through 12 for the rest of your life right so again I've been through those steps myriad myriad times and was working with a sponsor um, and had told her about all my history had written the, the history of my compulsive eating etc and she was the one the same week that this sponsor said this to me because this was actually in 2000 I didn't put down sugar till 2004 but in 2000 this woman said to me we're putting your stake in the ground and declaring that your abstinence is that you're going to be honest with your food let me know what it is and you're going to be committed to working the steps and that really changed my life because she heard about all this up and down and up and down and things that I'd been doing and realized it was just crazy. Again, I'd been through the steps over and over again. I was, you know, 40 pounds less than I had been when I came in. So, you know, I certainly wasn't done with the food. But, you know, I was, I, I, I'd made some movement, right? There'd been some movement. And so the same week that she said that, my registered dietitian said the same thing to me. She said, you got to stop starting over. That's got to stop, right? Because it's just keeping you 
behaving like a child because you don't have to take any real positions of responsibility and things and you know you don't get to stand on anything and um, you know it's 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 a problem so stop starting over so they both said that to me in 2000 so that was when my OA abstinence began but again so for the next four years now when they said that to me I started building something so even though I would get back into sugar you know like if you figure that I was trembling like this for a long time the tremble started slowing down, right? So I would still get back into it, but maybe I'd gain 5, 10 pounds. And again, the only reason I'm bringing up the numbers is so that you know my level of pain and my level of ability to actually deal with that pain in a healthy way instead of turning to the food. But um, it was 2004, so I now was about three and a half years abstinent, and was around 150, 155. And I just figured this is just the way it's going to be, that sometimes I'm going to be in the sugar and sometimes out. And, you know, my fiancé loves me no matter what I weigh. I've got the clothes. Doesn't doesn't matter. Let's just make this work. And I had been off sugar for about six, seven weeks. I'd gone through the holiday season because now it's January 12th. It's a Tuesday. Yep. Nope. It's January 13th. It's a Tuesday. Yes. And um, I'd been off sugar for about seven, eight weeks. So I'd made it through the holiday season, probably started around Thanksgiving or after Thanksgiving, I'm guessing, and then made it through the holiday season, made it through New Year's, etc. And um, my husband and I were at a really fancy restaurant in Hollywood. And um, who knows what happened? Maybe the waiter looked at me cross-eyed. I don't know. But all of a sudden I know... I was done not eating sugar. Like, I'm going to have sugar. I'm going to have dessert. And I'm going to do something. Like, I see pretty little things do in Hollywood all the time. I'm going to get a dessert with my husband. We're going to have it in the middle of the table, and we're going to share the dessert, right? Because all of a sudden, I can do that. I don't know what happened. I don't know how this decision came about. It's literally like it talks about in the book, you know. Whiskey will be fine if I pour it in milk. I have no idea where it came from, but all of a sudden, we're going to share desserts in the middle of the table. So he brings the dessert, this elaborate dessert, right? It's got all the garnishes and stuff. My husband's, you know, waxing poetic about the garnishes. I'm like, pass a fork. Who cares about the garnish, right? And, um, and my husband and I are sharing this dessert, except there's a problem. He's, he's, eating, he's eating more than me. And I know because I'm counting bites, right? I'm counting, counting his bites and my bites. So now we've got a problem, right? Be with me. It's January 13th. I was off sugar for almost two months. I'm back in. I've just shared a dessert. It's 11 o'clock, and now I'm back in the sugar. I need sugar, and I need a lot, and I need it quickly. Like, waiter, check, check, right? I mean, immediately, get over here. So he gets over, gets, we pay, we get out of there, we're walking to the car, and I am just, my head is just on. Just like it talks about in the book. You know, we can be fine, upstanding people, but, boy, you put that drug back in me, especially when it's been out of me for a while, and, and all bets are off. I've lost all sense of morality. And we're walking to the car, and I'm planning the lie. I'm planning the lie that I'm going to tell my husband because I need more sugar. I need more sugar. It's a Tuesday night. I need more sugar. I'm back in it. So I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I know. I'll, I'll, we'll get home, and I'll tell him, I'll tell him okay, so I, I actually need to go back to the store because I need to get tampons. And then I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's probably going to remember I had my period, just finished about a week ago. Okay, I know. Ovarian cysts, right? Ovarian cysts. I mean, I'm literally thinking, right? And, I, plus, and then I have to have the lie, like, even though I do have these potentially cancerous cysts, 
Why can't he go get the tampons for me? I mean, I, and then it's like, no, 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 I, you know, you don't understand. I, I, I need to think this through. I just got the information from my doctor, and I need to just settle in, right? I mean, the insanity. That's literally how it went. And I, I had it planned. And let me tell you something. I'm, I'm a writer. My whole job is to lie. So I know how to do this very well. So my hand was just about to touch the, the door handle of the car. And all of a sudden I thought, wow, I'm glad I don't live in a high-rise. I thought, what, what, where did, where did that thought come from? And in that moment, I got powerlessness, right? I finally got powerlessness over sugar because I got it that if I kept eating sugar, I could no longer guarantee that I wasn't going to one day kill myself. I got it in that moment. I really got it. And I had never gotten powerlessness before because I had seemingly not been paying a price. What a joke that is. I'd been paying a huge price, but I didn't know it. But because I didn't get back up to my top weight, I figured I wasn't paying a price. Thank you. And um, I was actually paying a huge price. And I got it in that moment, powerlessness over sugar. And what did I get up and do Wednesday? I had sugar again. I mean, that is really, I'm real clear how this is cunning, baffling, and powerful. But on January 15, 2004, I was released from the obsession to eat sugar. And I haven't had sugar since. And then slowly I started moving off other things that are problem, problem foods for me and problem behaviors. The reality is quantity eating was kind of the last one, the last stronghold for me, right? So, you know, for me, I, I weigh and measure my food. And it just works really well for me. You know, again, I had a brother who was a diabetic. We had those scales all over our house. It doesn't, it doesn't trip me up the way it, it, it bothers some people. I actually like weighing and measuring. Quite obviously, I don't weigh and measure if I'm at family gatherings or go to anybody's house or go to restaurants. But I do most of the time in my house. It just feels very comfortable for me. But um, that was a real miracle because when I finally could surrender to the sugar, and its power and realize it had won um, everything really started shifting in my life because that was a very conclusive third step for me that was a very conclusive third step because for me as a chronic slipper all day long I can turn my will and my love over to God I can turn my career over right I have not become wildly successful in my career I certainly haven't hit one out of the park right um, I have had a major health diagnosis at one point, which was very scary. I had an aunt who died of this, right? I can turn that stuff over. I can turn my husband over and his chronic unwillingness to put a napkin in his lap. Right? I can. I can. I can. That's why I go to Al-Anon. Um, um, I, can turn, I can turn what feel like those really big things over, but turn over my food. Are you kidding me? No. No, 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 no. I will tell people my deepest, darkest secrets. And I don't want anybody to know, or did not want anybody to know what I had for dinner last night. I didn't want to talk about that with anybody, right? So there was some real healing that started when I finally put down the sugar and, again, was cycling through the steps just over and over again and then, you know, moved into the other, you know, foods that just don't work for me because there are, you know, there are, there are foods that just don't work for me. And it's not that interesting to talk about the food. Talk to me afterwards if you want to kind of hear what my food plan is. But my abstinence is not what I eat about what I eat. And it's certainly not about what I weigh. And yet, um, I'm glad that I'm not overweight anymore. I'm glad because I'm, I don't have a body that does well with that. I'm, I'm 
tall and my shoulders are wide, so you wouldn't necessarily know, but I actually have a very small frame. I have like a th four, size four ring finger. I have two sisters who could not deliver babies naturally because their hips are so narrow, right? So we have kind of a small frame. So when I'm carrying around an extra 50 or 60 or 70 pounds on that frame, it doesn't serve me. I don't do well. So I'm glad that for me that I have surrendered substantially enough where I can let go of that weight. Again, what I weigh, I'm really clear, has nothing to do with my value as a woman and as a human being and a divine child of God. I'm real clear about that. But I also know I want to be free. And for me, um, when I'm in the food, whatever that means to me, when I'm in the food, it's at the top of my list. It's the most important thing in my life. And I, I need to get that list squared away. I need to get that list properly aligned, right? God needs to be at the top of the list, then my 12-step programs, then me. And I always tell my husband, he's number four. I'm like, honey, he's like, cool, I'm four, right? <laughs> but he knows that it wouldn't work if he was any higher on the list than four, right? It has to go that way because God loves me. I'm not somebody that says, oh, boy, if I get into the food, you know, it's all over. I don't have a God. No, 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 no. That's not the case for me. God doesn't go anywhere. I go somewhere. And God is, quite frankly, God is still accessible to me. But I have to work a lot harder. I have to work a lot harder. And I want this to be easier. I really do. I want this to be the, the, the happy, joyous, and free mandate that it tells us on page 133. Well, for me to be living in that mandate, for me, I have to put down the food. And I have to put down the food the way I use it. And I use sugar, and I do quantity eating. That's what I do. That's, that's what I do. That's why I weighed what I weighed. And it, just as I'm heading home here, um, I would just tell you that, that what, what became clear for me, because I'd been a chronic slipper for a dozen years, is I decided that both in this program and in the mother program, right, in Alcoholics Anonymous, that I was going to sponsor chronic slippers exclusively. So that's all I do. I only sponsor chronic slippers. I always tell people, I, I, don't, I, I, want the, I only want the sponsee that nobody else wants, right? I want the person who's sitting in the back of the room who thinks for whatever reason that it's been denied to them. Because I want to bring that point home very, very clearly. Nothing has been denied to you. But unfortunately, what's going on if you're a chronic slipper is you got some grooves. you got some real bad patterns. And one of those patterns is, I'm not sure I want to do that, sponsor of mine, so let me just think about that for a while. That's, that's one of the real bad patterns. It was certainly one of my bad patterns. I moved very, very slowly, and I did not want to take direction. So I sponsor people, and we work through the steps, as they're outlined in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it doesn't take long. Right? I, I celebrate the people that lead those workshops and take people through a, you know, the big book in 30 weeks or 52 weeks. It takes me about five, six weeks to get somebody through those steps. Right? So we work together for about, if somebody works with me for two months, two and a half months, that's a long time. And then I lovingly let them go and then encourage them to go find another sponsor because I'm going to pick up another chronic slipper because there's a lot of them. And if you do everything that that book directs you to do, and I mean everything because there's a lot of gems in there that we miss. Like, Raise your hand if you do a 10-step as it's outlined in the big book on page 84. Okay? Okay. Great. So there's what? Three or four and I do it. So there's maybe four or five of us, right, that know the four steps you take when you get off the rails during the course of the day. There are four steps I'm to take. I ask God to remove it. I share it with another human being. I make an amends if necessary, and then I get into service. And what my sponsor told me is 12-step service doesn't count because you're going to benefit from that. So do something that's going to benefit somebody else. Like you get transformed. You really see then how you can be happy, joyous, and free like it talks about. See, this is not bumper sticker stuff for me. This literally is a way of life. 
It really is. And I, I, yeah, I, I just, I love it. I love that transformation that happens. I really do. I love what happens between reading a fourth step to somebody and then the big book says I made my eight-step list when I took my four-step. So that means all the names that were on my four-step belong on my eight-step list. So that means Joe, who molested me, was doing amends for me. Hmm. What's that about? How did that work? Well, I certainly wasn't responsible for the fact that a pedophile molested me when I was 10 years old. But I am most definitely responsible for the fact that I didn't forgive him for many years. For that, I was responsible. And that was holding me bound, right? And I just had led another meeting in another fellowship last night and was talking about this, that, you know, I'm not letting somebody off the hook when you forgive them. If you forgive a pedophile, for instance, and about 95% of the people I sponsor have all been molested. So, I don't know, water rises to its own level or something. But um, um, you're not letting somebody off the hook. I'm not letting them off the hook. He didn't have a problem with the behavior. That's why he did it, right? It's not like he was traumatized by the fact that he did this. He didn't have a problem with it. I'm the one who had a problem with it. So I'm the one that's held bound, right? So again, those kind of transformations were really powerful when I'm working those steps just as they're outlined there. And again, I love the OA literature. It's holy stuff. In 12 and 12, I dig all that stuff. But i got to tell you, I don't really crack those books too much unless that sponsor directs me. And then, you know, my sponsors often will direct me just because they want to make sure that I'm, that they're going to crack the whip and I'm going to, I'm going to remember what I always tell my sponsors, that the only correct answer to a sponsor is yes. It's the only correct answer. So I get tested on that a lot. And the answer is always yes. Right. So, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just very, very grateful. You have really transformed my life here. And who knew that putting down the food, who knew that I was going to get everything, that I was going to get access to me? I certainly didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that I had any value. I didn't, I didn't know that I was worthy of love and forgiveness. And it's gotten much easier now. So I do love myself easier than I did before. I do forgive myself easier than I did before. And because I can do that for me, then I can do it for you. And I, I love what you have taught me. I love it. And I'll just close and say this, that I know some people talk about, I go to a... A church where a lot of people have gotten their recovery in 12-step programs, so they've decided they don't need to come to 12-step programs anymore. And again, I don't get into discussions with those people either. That's not my business. Not my business what anybody else does. I got opinions. I keep them to myself. That's a good thing. But, um, but what I got real clear about for myself is even if I thought that I didn't need to come here anymore to keep the recovery that I have, well then... I simply get to come for the rest of my life to give it away to you. Like you were here when I got here. Right? So I never understand that logic that says, well, I don't need the meetings anymore to stay abstinent or stay sober. It's like, great. Why don't you deal with that chronic selfishness and keep coming to meetings and give it away to other people? But again, that's good that I keep my mouth shut. (laughs) That's real good. And hopefully none of them are going to listen to this podcast. So, um... Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here, and I will keep coming, and you keep teaching me. Thank you.